0: In February of 1987, well-known televangelist Oral Roberts looked into the TV cameras and told his audience that unless he raised $8 million by the end of March, that God had told him he was going to call him home. You may have heard last year about the pastor from Atlanta, who's appropriately named Creflo Dollar, who said that God wanted him to have a sixty million dollar jet, and so he needed three thousand people or two hundred thousand people to give three hundred dollars each in order to make it happen? Or Roberts got his eight million, and Creflo Dollar got his over sixty million. A CNN article published last year describes a scene from one particular church on a Sunday morning. David Lee had just opened his wallet for two successive offerings at a church one Sunday morning when a pastor walked into the pulpit to pass on a request. You all are going to think I'm crazy, but God says to give again, the pastor said. The congregation rose from their seats to march to the front as the church organist played a soothing melody. As they dropped off their offerings at the altar, the pastor urged them on with, God says to give everything, don't hold nothing back. The organist picked up the tempo, and the pastor shouted, God says run! The offering ended with people surging toward the altar like music fans rushing a concert stage. It was pandemonium. They weren't just giving money, but shoes, watches, and diamond rings, Lee says. There were people dropping alligator shoes on the altar. Now fortunately, these examples are not the norm in Christian churches. It's not the way most Christian churches operate. However, these examples do help to explain why so many people are suspicious that the main thing churches are interested in is your money. That's why one recent book describes the taking up of the offering every Sunday morning as the Sunday morning stick-up. That's not the way we approach things here, but it is the way many people think of it. Well, what are we to think of offerings? Why should we give our money through the church? Is there a set amount that God requires? Does God require a set percentage? Does God care about how much we keep as well as how much we give? Well, the Bible addresses all of these questions in the way that it instructs us to be generous and how it instructs us to give. And although false teachers and charlatans have abused scripture and misrepresented what God has said about giving our money away, we must not allow their distortion of the word of God to keep us from seriously and honestly considering what it does say about giving and about being generous. God calls his people to be generous because he has been generous to us. That's the main point of the Message that we're going to study this morning from God's Word. For the last several months, we've been working our way through 2 Corinthians, Paul's letter of 2 Corinthians. And today, we come to chapters 8 and 9, where the Apostle Paul writes about money. Now, I know what some of you guests and visitors are thinking. Oh boy, <laughs> I came to church and they're preaching about money and it just fits into the caricature. Just hang with us and consider what the Word of God says and listen to. To see if indeed the caricatures that unfortunately have some reality behind them. Fit with what the word of God actually says. About how we should think about giving away our money. Scripture teaches us that because God is generous. We're called to be generous. And it doesn't matter how much we have or how little we have. Our text this morning is found on page 967. If you're using one of the Bibles in the chair in front of you. And I want to begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 8, and we're going to read all the way down through chapter 9, verse 15. So we're going to read these two chapters together because in these chapters we have, I think, a very good, succinct expression of God's will for us regarding money. So follow along in your copy of God's Word as I begin reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. But they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. But thanks be to God who put it into the heart of Titus the same earnest care that I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us. For the glory of the Lord himself And to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters. But who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and to arrange in advance for the gift that you've promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Paul writes this section of his letter to the church at Corinth because... There is a need in Jerusalem that the Corinthians have been made aware of and other churches have been made aware of and that they had agreed to contribute to meet. They had actually promised the year before that they were going to take up an offering for their poor brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was under a very severe famine. There was persecution among believers there in that first church, first New Testament church that had started. And so many of the believers were suffering doing without basic needs so Paul writes to the church at Corinth and at the end of his first letter 1st Corinthians 16 verses 1 through 4 he encourages them to take up this offering to meet the needs of the poor Christians in Jerusalem as a result of their committing to do this and yet not having fulfilled it Paul takes up the issue again in the midst of 2nd Corinthians in these two chapters That we've just written. What I want to do this morning. Is to take note of these two chapters. As a whole unit. And point out. Eight specific principles. About being generous in our giving. That we find. Taught to us here. Brothers and sisters. If you want to honor the Lord. In your giving. If you want to be biblical in your generosity. You want to guard against being led astray. By religious scam artists. Then pay very careful attention. To these two chapters they are the most succinct the most uh, thorough teaching we have in any one place in the New Testament on this subject giving is at the very heart of Christianity because Jesus Christ has been given by God to come into the world to be our Lord and Savior Jesus himself gave up all the benefits that were his from eternity as the eternal son of God in order to become a man for us He substituted his life for ours before God. He gave up all of the privileges that were his in order to represent us in God's courtroom so that through faith in him we might be reconciled to God, have our sin forgiven, and receive forgiveness. And because of his generosity to us, God calls us to give generously in return. So how should God's God's people give? Eight answers to that question from these two chapters. First, we should give with a determination to excel in the grace of giving. The first seven verses of chapter 8 spell this out. And you see in verse 7 that Paul admonishes us, See that you excel in this act of grace also. Generosity is a work of God's grace in his people. Paul calls it here, an act of grace. That is, it's the result of God doing something and changing the disposition, changing the values, changing the mind of a person. To be generous is God-like because God is the first and the greatest giver. And it's because He has given that we are enabled to give. When we give, we're acting like our Heavenly Father. This kind of grace, the grace of giving, was given to the churches of Macedonia. That's the churches at Philippi and church at Berea, the church at um, Thessalonica. And Paul describes them, holding them up as an example, in the way that they gave, having received this grace of giving. Look at verse 2. He says they gave out of severe affliction. He says they gave with abundance of joy. They gave even though they were marked by extreme poverty. And then he says in verse 3, they gave according to their means and beyond their means. That's an intriguing thought, isn't it? To give beyond your means. And they did this of their own accord. They gave zealously. Look at verse 4. He says they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. It may be that Paul had considered that they were suffering so much out of poverty themselves, they didn't have enough resources. Maybe he didn't originally ask them to be included in this offering taken up for the saints in Jerusalem. The result was they begged him for the privilege of participating. Now this is a completely different mentality than what we typically have regarding money. We usually think of giving on the basis of what we can afford really on the basis of what we think we can afford after we've paid our bills, after we've taken care of our recreations. And we surely don't consider that those who are poor should be encouraged to give. In fact, if you think of yourself as poor, you may well have fallen into the trap of thinking that you cannot give or that you should not give. You know, the story's told about two farmers who are lifelong friends, and they're sitting out on the porch And talking one day, and one farmer looks to his buddy. He says, Jed, you know, you're the best friend I've had in this world. He said, I I would, if I had 100 heads of cow, I'd give you 50 of them. And Jed looks at him and says, Bob, you mean you would give me half of your herd? And he said, yeah, I'd do that. He said, I mean, if you had 50 heads of cattle, you'd give me 25? He said, I sure would. He said, if you had 10, you'd give me five? He said, absolutely. If you had two, you'd give me one? Bob hit Jed. Jed said, why'd you do that? He said, you know I got two cows. <laughs> That's the way a lot of times we think about giving, isn't it? Theoretically. If only I had more, or when I get more, then I'll be very generous. But biblical generosity does not wait until you possess a certain amount. It finds a way to give. It wants to give because it recognizes that we have been given much by Jesus Christ. We are to aspire to excel in giving. Verse 7. To grow in the grace of giving. Look at this verse. Paul says, As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, and knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. do You see what Paul's saying here? Do you see the way he's approaching the subject? Brothers and sisters, don't you want to grow in faith? Don't you want to grow in knowledge of God? Don't you want to have more understanding of the Word of God? Don't you want to become more articulate in how you speak of the things of God? Don't you want to become more earnest? Don't you want to experience more of the love of God's people for you? Paul says, in the same way that you want to grow in those graces, desire to excel in the grace of giving. In other words, he's saying, make it a goal in your life to become more generous by the grace of God. To grow more and more so that you're able to release more and more for God's honor and glory in this world. Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you a question. Think about this in your mind. How long have you been a Christian? How long have you been trusting Jesus Christ? What does your giving look like today? Your generosity compared to when you first trusted Christ? Are you giving in the same way? Have you just kind of set that off to the side and thought, well, yeah, I know I'm supposed to give and so I give. Maybe you've settled on some number that you ought to give or some percentage that you ought to give and you really haven't thought about excelling in giving growing in the grace of giving. In the Old Testament, God required a tithe of his people. The word tithe means 10%. And so some Christians today say, well, that's what we're to give, 10% of our income. But when you look at what this passage says and other New Testament passages, you realize that if you were to stop at 10%, that you would fail to appreciate everything that God is saying to us about how we are to think about our possessions. 10% is probably a good starting point for most of us, for some, it might be too much. But it is not a ceiling, it's not an ending point. If we're growing in grace and we want to grow in grace, Paul says, desire to grow in this grace as well. So, are you growing in the grace of giving? Make it your aim to grow, make a plan, pray, seek counsel, do what God calls you to do as you seek to excel. In the grace of giving. So that's the first answer to the question. Secondly we are to give because God's grace. Has been given to us. This is verses 8 and 9 of chapter 8. Paul isn't trying to coerce the Corinthians to give. He's not trying to manipulate them or pressure them in any way. He is wanting to teach them how to measure. And express the authenticity of their love. John tells us in 1 John 3.18. That we're not to love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. It's one thing to say you love. It's another thing to express your love by giving. And if love is measured by what it gives, then what does our giving say about our love to God? Verse 9, he says that we are to remember the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ. This is an incredible verse. If you don't remember any verse except this one out of these two chapters, you will do well. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is one of the greatest sentences in the Bible about Jesus Christ. And isn't it interesting that this sentence is being used to teach us about giving? To encourage us to become generous. Paul says here's the pattern. Here's the motivation that we should seek. As we consider how we can grow in the grace of giving. Think about Jesus. Jesus impoverished himself to make us rich. What does Paul mean by that? Well he's thinking about the incarnation. How Jesus, God, the son from all eternity volunteered to step into our world of mankind to become one of us. He condescended. He he was willing to leave all of the benefits that were his in heaven as the eternal son of God and impoverish himself to become a real man. But it didn't stop there. He went on to impoverish himself by laying down his life on the cross. He willingly chose to die. He was God. At every moment that He lived as a man, He was still God. And He had all of the power and authority of God. And He willingly chose not to exercise that, but to lay His life down on the cross. Why? So people like you and me could have our sins forgiven. Could know that what God requires in terms of payment, the penalty of sin was completely taken care of by his one act of atonement. Paul says, think about this. You know the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He was rich. But for your sakes, he became poor. So that through his poverty, you might be made rich. Brothers and sisters, when we're thinking rightly and we consider Christ, we know that because of Christ we have been made rich. We have been made rich with eternal life. We've been made rich toward God. And there's a natural impulse that results in a person who's experienced that kind of saving benefit through Jesus Christ. Such a person becomes a giver because he's been given so much. Now we see this. We see this in the encounter that Jesus had with an unscrupulous thieving tax collector named Zacchaeus. You can read about it in Luke chapter 19, but if you know the story, you'll remember Zacchaeus was determined to see Jesus. He wasn't a very big guy, so he climbed in a tree when Jesus was walking by. Jesus pointed him out. He says, come down, I'm going to go to your house today. And when Jesus stayed with Zacchaeus, the result was we hear Zacchaeus saying, look, I'm going to give half of everything I own to the poor. And the people that I've robbed, I'm going to pay them back four times what I robbed from them. Why is that? Well, Jesus tells us why. Salvation has come to Zacchaeus, to his household today. When God saves us, when we have dawned upon us what we've been given in Jesus Christ, he places within us this desire to give even as he gives. So, give. Because God's grace has been given to you. Thirdly, give with an intentional commitment. You see verses 10, 11, and 12 in chapter 8. And then the first four verses in chapter 9 tells us about how Paul's instructing the Corinthians to finish the good work that they started. They had a desire to give a year before. They'd started to give a year before, but they had not yet completed their desire they'd not yet completed the work that they began I mean there was trouble in the church there was questions about Paul and his authority and relationship to the church people had come in and tried to undermine that relationship and all of that caused this start that they made to be put on the back burner and Paul is saying come now and complete what you begin if you look at the first few verses in chapter 9 he says look there may be some Macedonians coming when this offering is received and I've already told the Macedonians about how a year ago you started you were ready to give and can you imagine what it'll be like these Macedonians I've just described in the first few verses of chapter 8 who out of their poverty out of severe affliction gave beyond their means if they show up and the Corinthian church hasn't given it'll be humiliating why the very boasts that I've made about you will be shown to be unreliable When the proper attitude and commitment to give is present, the gift is acceptable to God no matter what the amount. That's what he says in verse 12. If you're thinking, oh, well, I don't have enough money, or I started, I intended, but now I can't, Paul says, look, God doesn't measure on the basis of what you don't have. God will accept what you give when you give with this proper attitude and desire. John Calvin has a wonderful little commentary On this verse, he says, If you offer a small gift from your slender resources, your intention is just as valuable in God's eyes as if a rich man had made a large gift out of his abundance. Plan to give, and then give as you have planned. Give with an intentional commitment. Fourthly, give as a matter of fairness. It's interesting to see this word in the Bible, but here it is twice in verses 13 and 14. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. Twice Paul mentions that word. He's not advocating some form of communism here. He's not suggesting that there ought to be some coerced taking of your wealth and redistributing your wealth to others he's not suggesting that at all he is not asking the corinthians to make themselves poor so that those in jerusalem can be made rich no he's encouraging christians who have resources to use their resources to help meet the needs of fellow christians who because of a lack of resources are having their needs unmet and that's the goal Toward which we ought to strive as God's people. He quotes from Exodus 16 about manna. That those who gathered much didn't have any left over. Those who gathered little were not without enough. This is the, the goal. That we should see the needs of God's people. Always being met by the concern and love of God's people. To give of our resources. You know in this church we've been on both ends of this. In 2004 when Hurricane Charlie blew through here, a lot of folks were damaged in their property and lost things and our our old building was damaged. And when churches began to hear about it throughout the United States, we began to get mail. We began to get checks just pouring in, phone calls. People sent people, teams down here to help us rebuild and to help us minister in the community with resources that, that we didn't have in and of ourselves. In 2005 when Katrina, Hurricane Katrina, decimated the Gulf Coast and Mississippi, We connected with Don Elborn, a pastor of Lakeshore Baptist Church there, and we helped rebuild Lakeshore. We sent money, we sent teams, we had vested interest in that. In 2010, when the earthquake wiped out so much of Haiti, killing thousands of people, we responded as God opened the door, and we have given tens of thousands of dollars to help those who are without basic needs to provide food for orphans in a relationship that continues on today. Through our cooperation with other churches in the Southern Baptist Convention, week in and week out, we are involved in helping to feed those that are without basic necessities of life. We're engaged in meeting needs of Christians who are poor around the world. That's simply the way of Christ. That's the way of our Savior. And I'm so very encouraged as a pastor here at this church to see how this understanding plays out. It works itself out day in, day out here in this congregation. As you give of yourself to help meet needs in this body, whether that's driving someone to a medical appointment, whether it's helping somebody move as they're transitioning from one place to another, providing a meal for someone who's sick, opening your home so somebody can have a place to stay a room where they can sleep giving money God tells us this is the way we ought to live we're to give as a matter of fairness fifthly we're to give with integrity and discernment if you look at verses 16 through the end of the chapter of chapter 8 you'll see that Paul goes to great lengths To ensure the integrity of the process of receiving gifts. This is interesting. It's fascinating. He, He mentions three men that are going to be sent to make this gift ready in Corinth. That are going to be involved in the care of this gift. These are men of proven character. And they are the ones who will be trusted with handling the offering. Titus, of course, is a man we've already heard about in this letter. He's a man well known to the church at Corinth. He loves the Corinthians. They love him. And then he mentions in verses 18 and 19 a man that is only known by being a famous preacher of the gospel. We don't know who he is. A lot of people speculate about who he is, but the reality is he's anonymous to us, but not to the churches there in that time because they appointed him for this ministry. And then in verse 22, to those two men, he mentions a third man, an earnest and tested brother. And do you see in verse 23 how these men are described by Paul? He says they are the glory of Christ. They're the messengers of the churches called out to be as men of integrity to handle this offering. And Paul says in that they are the glory of Christ sent by the churches for this important task. Now Paul takes these measures of appointing proven men to handle the offering... In order to ensure the integrity of the process. Look at verses 20 and 21. He says we take this course so that no one should blame us. About this general gift, this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable. Not only in the Lord's sight but also in the sight of man. Now as the examples that I mentioned at the beginning of this message indicate. There are people who will... In the name of Christianity, take your money for unscrupulous reasons. And the reason that Paul goes to great length here to guarantee the integrity of this process is to keep that from happening. And the fact that he does this is very instructive to us in at least two ways. First, it's instructive to us as a church. It tells us that we must be completely above board in how the offerings are received and handled and distributed in this church. That's why here we are very, very careful to make sure that no one is ever left alone with access to the offerings, the monies that are given week in and week out here. It's why there are people in place who are... Checks and balances on one another as that money is collected and accounted for and then deposited into the bank. We want to try to guard against any opportunity for fraud. It's why the congregation votes on a budget that governs our financial responsibility. It's why there is a team that assists the elders in publishing a budget every two months It's available to anybody in the congregation to see how the money has come in and where the money is being dispersed. It's why we have a certified public accountant that we pay to monitor our finances day in and day out. Financial integrity is taught in this passage and it is what we try to practice as a church. But this also teaches us as Christians, individual Christians. How we should take care in what we give and how we give. Brothers and sisters, there are worthwhile Christian organizations beyond your local church that would be worthy of your support in giving above and beyond what you give to your church. But beware, because there are many organizations and people who solicit your money and who, in the words of the songwriter Paul Kelly, are just stealing in the name of the Lord. And if you give to an organization, you ought to request accountability from them. You ought to ask them what measures are in place to to, to move your gift along a pathway of financial integrity. Give with discernment and integrity. Sixthly, give cheerfully. Give cheerfully. If you look at chapter 9, verses 5 through 7, you'll see this. And Paul there says that there are bad ways to give and there are good ways to give. Some of the bad ways, in verse 5, give not as an exaction. In other words, not as extortion. He says, I don't want to be guilty of manipulating you. I don't want there to be any hint that I'm doing something that is putting you on the spot so that you feel like, oh yeah, okay, I've got to do this. I've got to have this money ready for Paul. Paul says, I'm not going to wring money out of you verse 7 not reluctantly that's with hesitance with regret not under compulsion that is as if you were being coerced those are bad ways to give i mean you can give to the IRS that way they don't care but you will not give in a way that honors god if those motives are in your heart but what are the good ways in verse 5 Willingly, as a willing give, that's given freely, purposefully. Do you see that in verse 7? As he has decided in his heart, with resolve, with forethought, cheerfully, verse 7, for God loves a cheerful giver. Brothers and sisters, we ought to aspire to be the kind of giver that God loves. We ought to desire to give in a way that we can be sure God is delighted in. Learn to find joy in giving. You can do that as you think rightly about your relationship to God and why you are giving. That doesn't mean to give cheerfully that it will necessarily be painless to give. Sometimes it is very costly to give. Well, how can you give cheerfully? How is it possible to give cheerfully? We don't typically think about finding joy and being separated from our money and yet, Paul says, this should be the Christian experience. It's exactly the point of the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 13, 44. Listen to it. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Have you ever thought about it? In joy. He joyfully sells out. He goes home and says, honey, we're selling everything we own. His neighbors come and say, what's going on? They must think it's a disaster that's hit him. No, he's deliriously happy. Why? Because he's found something more valuable than everything else he possesses. Brothers and sisters, this is the key to becoming a cheerful giver. What is it that makes a person reluctant to part with his money? Well, It's when you start thinking about what you're going to have left. How you're going to be diminished in your wealth. But when a person realizes that all that he has in Christ, all that he's been given, he'll begin to think of the opportunity to give to the cause of Christ as a great privilege. And he'll begin to understand and appreciate and experience what Jesus said. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Give this way and you'll give cheerfully. The seventh answer to the question, how should we give? We should give because God generously gives. Verses 8 through 11. Look at verse 8. God is able. God is able. He is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may be able to abound in every good work. By His grace to supply all of our needs, we are set free to invest our resources in His kingdom. God provides us with all things at all times so that we might abound in every good work. God generously gives to His people. Look at verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Stop right there. This passage has been abused by prosperity preachers. This passage has been taken from its context, twisted and distorted by those who say, listen, God wants you to be rich. And of course, they know how to get rich for you. It's by giving them money. And then they will assure your riches. They look at these verses, they say, God will multiply your seed. He promises that you'll be enriched in every way. And then using that out of context, they'll begin to try to manipulate you to separate you from your money. But what is being taught here? What does this passage say? Look at verse 8. God can make grace abound to us so that we may abound in every good work, including the good work of giving. Verse 10. The analogy that he uses here is taken from the world of farming. Now those of you who know about farming, why does a farmer want more seed? To hoard, to spend, that's to plant. It's to scatter. Why will God enrich us in every way? Verse 11, to be generous in every way. Why has God given to us the wealth that we have? It is so that as His people, like Him, we might grow in this grace of giving to be generous in every way. Brothers and sisters, the point here is that God is able to take care of us. He supplies all of our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Understanding this about our lives will transform the way that we think about our material prosperity. God is the source of all that we are, all that we have. Paul puts it like this rhetorically in 1 Corinthians 4-7 when he says, What do you have that you haven't received? What do you have that you haven't been given? And the answer, of course, is not one thing. God's given us everything we have. But wait a minute. I mean, didn't you work hard for your house? Didn't you put in long hours? Didn't you risk in those business ventures? Haven't you sacrificed? Didn't you stay up late, get up early? Didn't you exercise the energy that you had to get where you are today? Well, yeah, that's probably all true for several of you. But who gave you the health during all those times of exertion? Who gave you the breath that you breathed during those times? Who kept your heart pumping during those times? Who gave you opportunity, putting you in a place where you could pursue that? God did. And until we come to recognize this is true, then we will not see how generous God has been to us. But to the degree that we do realize that all we are, all we have is because of God's grace, we will be encouraged to trust Him more and to generously give as He leads. Do you remember that old movie, Shenandoah, with Jimmy Stewart? It's a great scene in that movie. His wife's died, he's got his kids around the table and about to eat dinner, and because his wife always had him say prayers before they ate, he's going to pray. This is his prayer. Lord, we cleared this land by the sweat of our brow. We tilled and prepared the land. We planted and weeded and harvested by our own hard work. We've taken no charity from anyone, and if we hadn't done it ourselves, it wouldn't have been done. But we are thankful to you anyway, Lord. Amen. That's the way a lot of us think, isn't it? I did this. I worked for this. Thank you, Lord. We feel like giving is almost like tipping God for good service. You know, you, you've done pretty well by me, God. So I want to give a little bit to show my appreciation. Rather than seeing that the reason we have anything and all that we have is because of God. God's done it. And if we see that, then we will not be hesitant or fearful to pray and to work to grow in the grace of giving because all that we have It's come from Him, and we're just stewards of it anyway. So we should give because we know God has generously given to us. Eight, we should give because God is glorified when we do give. We see this at the latter part of chapter 9, beginning in the middle of verse 11. When we give in the way that God directs, God will be thanked. Such giving, Paul says, produces thanksgiving to God. Verse 12, look at this. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also is overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. When people give like this, other people will be blessed, and God will receive the glory. That's what Paul says in verse 13. By their approval of this service, the saints in Jerusalem, benefiting by it. They will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. The submission that comes from your confession of Christ. Christ is Lord. That makes me submissive to His will and how I handle my finances. Glory will come to God as we are faithful in giving. It'll be evident that it's God's work. He's the one who's done it. His grace is overflowing in the lives of His people. Well, Paul wraps up his teaching about giving with this outburst of praise and thanksgiving in verse 15. You see this? Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. What's it referring to? He's referring to the gift of Jesus Christ. He's he's thinking about how the Corinthians have and will give and how the the believers in Jerusalem will benefit and the praise that will come to God. And he, he sees the wisdom of God and how he's ordered all this so that we have resources that we can use to meet the needs of those who don't have resources. And he just says, thanks be to God for Jesus Christ because he knows that all of this is because of Christ. Jesus is the greatest gift that's ever been given. It's because of Him that we have any inclination or ability to give. When God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, He was giving the greatest gift that could ever be given, and He was giving the gift that inspires every gift of every Christian. So, brothers and sisters, are you able to say with Paul, thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift? If you've received freely the gift of Christ, then make it your ambition to grow in the grace of giving. Now, I know that some of you are here this morning and you're not trusting Christ as Lord. You're not living for Christ. You're not dependent upon Him. And, and you may think, man, why in the world? Come to church and hear a sermon on money. But I want you to to hear this last statement by Paul. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. You see, the only reason that Christians are Christians is because they've received the gift of Jesus Christ. That's it. They haven't done anything. They haven't earned anything. They haven't been better. They haven't... Tried harder. They've received the gift of Christ that Paul says it's inexpressible to consider having Jesus Christ as Lord, having Jesus Christ as Savior, having Jesus Christ as advocate, having Him as the payment of my sin, having Him as my righteousness. Paul said, I don't even know how to put that into words. That's the only thing that makes a person a Christian. He's received that. Not not by doing, but by trusting, by believing, by bowing to Christ. And the only reason you're not a Christian. It's because you have not received this gift. So I would ask you today, why not? Why will you not receive the gift of Jesus Christ? You receive him now. How? Not by doing anything physical. Not by going through some kind of ritual. You receive him by bowing to him as Lord. You receive him by acknowledging that everything the Bible tells us about him is true. Everything the Bible says about you and me is true. And so we desperately need a Savior. And God has provided that Savior in his Son, Jesus Christ. And you just call upon him from your heart. Confess Jesus as Lord. Turn from the way you've been living and acknowledge, God, you have given your Son to be the Savior of sinners. I'm a sinner. Save me. If you'll trust Christ in that way, God will accept you. He'll receive you to Himself. He'll make you His child. He will begin to put you into the way of thinking and living that these two chapters have elucidated when it comes to something as mundane and insignificant as money. If you want. talk more about that there are people here that would be glad to talk to you talk to somebody sitting next to you or after the service in the back or come seek me out we'd be glad to talk with you more about how you can come to receive this inexpressible gift of Jesus Christ let's pray together our father we thank you for your word we thank you that you do instruct us in things that are so common to us, like money. We pray as your people that you would work in us deeply this grace of giving. Do for us what you did for the Macedonians. Lord, help us to think rightly about our lives, about our possessions, about stewardship. I pray that you would reorient our thinking so that we would see you as the source of all we are and all we have, and that we would hold our lives, all of our possessions, all of our wealth, with an open hand. Reveal Jesus as the great gift to sinners, to those here today who have never bowed to him and tasted to see that you're good. Open their eyes. Do for them what you did for these young ladies and their own testimonies about how you came to them and open their eyes and reveal Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen.